Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. It's no secret that the pandemic has changed the way many of us think about work. Along with record numbers of workers leaving their jobs, the past two years have seen an increase in reports of exhaustion and burnout. But what is the phenomenon of burnout precisely? What drives it and what can we do about it? On this episode, Commonweal Managing Editor Katie Daniels speaks with author and Commonweal contributor Jonathan Molesic about his new book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Uh, Hi, Katie. It's great to see you today. Hi, Dominic. It's great to be here. So we are all readers of John's work, but why don't you tell listeners about him? Sure. So John has been writing for Commonweal for a number of years. His first piece for us was a burnt out case, which was actually named a notable essay of 2018 by Best American Essays. And he's a theologian who's been an articulate and insightful voice in the national conversation around burnout after personal struggle with burnout led him to leave his tenure job in academia. I found this book to be a really useful entry point into that conversation. It offers an overview of the history of the phrase burnout and its roots in more ancient concepts like acedia. And it describes how working conditions in the United States have deteriorated in a way that makes it hard for workers to really find separation between their jobs and their personal lives. But Molesic also draws on thinkers like Pope Leo XIII and Henry David Thoreau to make the case for a way of life that doesn't lead to burnout, but rather to a life of abundance. Okay, well, thanks. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So why don't we take a listen? Thanks, Katie. Thank you. John, welcome to the Commonweal podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you've written several notable essays for Commonweal, many of which touch on how you've grappled with burnout in the past. What was your own experience of burnout like, and how did it set you on the path of writing about it? Yeah, it begins with my career. And I was a theology professor for 11 years. And one of my research and teaching areas was work as a spiritual and moral problem. So I I taught a class called Why Work, in which Mm -hmm. we address the kind of big questions that come up from our working lives. When I started the job, I loved it. It was my dream job. But at some point, that question that I was asking in class why work became the central existential question of my life. I, for reasons that I didn't understand at the time, started to find it harder and harder even to get out of bed and go to this job that I had loved. My ability to prepare for class got worse. My temper got shorter. And I was just more and more frustrated with my job. And I, like I said, I didn't know what exactly was going on. I even took an entire semester of unpaid leave to try to just get away from the college, sort things out, and then come back refreshed. And the rest worked for about a week or two. Before long, I was right back where I was before. I was just as miserable, just as frustrated, had just as difficult a time getting ready to teach my classes. Eventually, what happened was that my wife got a job offer in Dallas, Texas. And so I one of the easiest career decisions I've made was to quit 
and to follow her. In the weeks after my decision to resign, the, I started to investigate this idea of burnout. I thought, well, what had happened to me? And the word burnout kind of seemed like a possible explanation. And I started reading books and scientific articles on burnout. And the more I read, the more this concept made sense of my experience at work. And the, I, I started to eventually connect that to my previous research on work as a moral and spiritual question. And I realized that, well, burnout is, is a problem not just for me, but for millions of people and ultimately with our entire culture. And so the book comes out of this personal experience, but it's my attempt to diagnose the problem that we're having with work in our culture and also to propose ways beyond the the burnout that pervades it. I feel like now of all times, it's really when a lot of people seem to be having this conversation, right? This conversation about what is the problem with work, right? You've got the pandemic, you've got work from home, you've got the great resignation. What are some ways that others have defined burnout and how do you define it? Yeah, so you're right that the conversation about burnout has really heated up in the last couple of years as burnout has become our go-to term to explain the problems that we're having with work. And if you read a lot of articles about burnout, as I do, uh, you see these really alarming headlines. 75% of workers are burned out or 96% of millennials are burned out or something like that. And the, those statistics are certainly very alarming, but the problem is that the definition of burnout is so inconsistent across our public conversation. And the, the, the reason that we're able to see burnout everywhere is that we don't have a really solid definition of burnout. So I think in the broader culture, people often uh, equate ordinary tiredness with burnout, for instance. So you finish a long project, you close a magazine issue, and you think, oh my gosh, I'm so wiped out, I must be burned out. But if you can get up again on Monday and go back to your job and not hate it and yourself, then that wasn't burnout. That was just ordinary tiredness, which is to be expected. I think that, there, that people often equate boredom with burnout. I think that people equate having an unmanageable to-do list with burnout. Those things are not burnout. Those things are consequences of finitude. We are finite mortal beings and we have ambitions to do more than we can. Burnout, as I define it, is the persistent experience of being stretched between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. So it's chronic and it has to do with that conflict between ideals and reality. And researchers who study burnout measure it along three dimensions. So there are three aspects of burnout. Exhaustion is one. I think most of us are familiar with that. Cynicism is another, and that's where you start to treat the people you work with 
more as problems than as people. That's that frustration that I felt when I was a full-time faculty. And the third is a sense of ineffectiveness, that this feeling that your work doesn't amount to anything. And in my case, that last one manifested in just this feeling of emptiness at the end of a, a class. I just felt like I hadn't taught the students anything. When you have those three experiences over a long enough time, that is a classical case of burnout. As you mentioned, we're all talking a lot about burnout, but when did we first start using this term? When did that sort of come into to popular usage? Yeah, I, I would say like Commonweal uh, readers are probably, many of them are aware of the Graham Greene novel, A Burnt Out Pace, which I would put in the prehistory of burnout. So the main character there, Query, suffers from something like burnout. But burnout was not defined by psychologists until the 1970s. And it was this really interesting simultaneous discovery of two psychologists working independently using different methods on opposite coasts. One of them, Herbert Freudenberger, who worked at the St. Mark's Free Clinic in New York's East Village. And what Freudenberger had seen with the volunteer staff at the clinic was they, they complained about exhaustion and frustration and drug use and, and so on. And they called, they said that they were burned out. And the term probably was borrowed from the people they were treating at the free clinic. On the West Coast, Christina Maslach, who has a, herself has a really interesting history as the hero of the Stanford prison experiment. She's the one who convinced Philip Zimbardo to put a stop to it. She was a researcher at UC Berkeley, and she had been doing research with social workers and poverty attorneys, and they also were using this term burnout to describe their frustration with work. And so Freudenberger and Maslach published their papers at almost exactly the same time describing this similar phenomenon. Over the course of the 70s, burnout took on this buzzword status to the point where during the air traffic controllers strike in 1981, Burnout was listed as the first complaint by the air traffic, air traffic controllers union president. And William Sapphire in his column was saying that the term had itself undergone linguistic burnout. So the parallel I see between the way that we talked about burnout in the 70s and now is that we've had 50 years to agree on a definition. We haven't done that. Even researchers don't entirely agree with each other. And we've allowed it still to take on this buzzword status without actually trying to fix the problem. Prior to the pandemic, I was getting a, a Google alert every morning about every article published about burnout the day before. And on just one day, just a random August Tuesday, there were, you know, dozens of articles about burnout among every imaginable profession and some unimaginable ones. Unimaginable to me, at least, like neurointerventionalists. And so I was seeing articles that seemed to me fairly serious. So here's the problem of burnout among nurses. 
And we have definitely seen that in the pandemic or among teachers or social workers or whoever else, right? Like virtually every profession. In fact, I would just say every profession is subject to burnout. But at the same time, I was also seeing writers try to capitalize on the term and the flexibility of the term to complain about such scourges as bridesmaid burnout or hunting dog burnout or TV binge watching burnout or my favorite burning man burnout. These things are not uh, burnout in any scientific sense. And so I really want to separate out the serious conversation from the silly conversation. I want the conversation around burnout to look more like the conversation around depression, for example. A line that really stood out to me in your book was you wrote, uh, to participate in the work culture of our era just is to risk burnout. What are some of the structural ways the jobs have gotten worse and more stressful for workers in the past several decades that might have contributed to this culture? That period of 1973-74, when burnout was first identified, has been crucial economically in the U.S. in particular. Historians now see it as a real watershed moment in a shifting culture and especially a shifting culture around work. And among those changes, one is what the economist David Weil calls the fissured workplace. It represents a business doctrine where any organization has a core of full-time employees and that core is generally kept as small as possible to limit costs. And then though that core is orbited by a large number of people who have more precarious employment. They might be part-time, they might be temps, they might be adjunct faculty, they might be contract workers, or the extreme example would be Uber and DoorDash and so on. So that fissured workplace has led to a lot more precarious employment for workers. That has also meant that wages have stagnated almost completely since the 1970s. There's been a bit of an uptick recently, but wages have detached from workers' productivity. So workers are economically more and more productive, but they're not getting the fruits of their labor passed on to them in terms of salary. A third change is just the the, the way that the economy has shifted from a being driven by industrial production to services. So for more and more workers, the means of production are in our minds and hearts. They're in our facial expressions. They're in the way that we talk. And that means that our work is much more intimately personal than it had been decades ago. That means that work just takes up more space in our lives. It takes up more time. We're commuting longer. It takes up more of who we are. And we have less space to be someone other than a worker. 
those are some of the key ways that I think that the bargain that workers are getting has gotten worse in this era of burnout. We'll have more of Katie's conversation with Jonathan Malesic in a minute. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together a group of Russell Berry Fellows to study in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, known as the Angelicum, there to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one academic year from October to June. They take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism, and Islam. They traveled to Israel for 10 days to study at the Shalom Hartman Institute and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land, and they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. If you're interested, you can register for an informative webinar and submit your application for the fellowship program at the Angelicum by April 25, 2022. For more information, visit iie.eu slash berry, that's spelled B-E-R-R-I-E. I love your discussion of Pope Leo XII's encyclical Rerum Novarum in your book. And I wanted to flag it here because it brought up an interesting question for me. When we talk about the dignity of work, how do we uphold the dignity of the worker while also avoiding this pitfall that you've identified of considering work or the ability to work to be the source of someone's dignity? Yeah, the, the dignity of work is a term like burnout itself. Everybody is in favor of the dignity of work, but no one can agree on what they mean by it. it. Really, there's two definitions of the dignity of work that prevail in our society today. And one of them is a, probably the more common one, is the notion that you only get dignity once you start working for pay. And this, that idea is behind a lot of politicians' sense of what the dignity of work means. They start talking about the dignity of work when they're trying to cut food stamp benefits or impose work requirements or something like that. That notion is totally antithetical to Catholic social teaching from Leo forward in Catholic thought. Every one of us has dignity, whether we work or not. We have dignity throughout our entire lives, regardless of our condition related to work. And what that means is that work needs to measure up to our dignity rather than the other way around. We don't gain dignity through our work, but rather employers have the opportunity to create work environments that measure up to the dignity that their workers already had before they ever went on the job. Now, you mentioned something that makes me think of a, a certain kind of pitfall in Catholic thinking on this question. This is Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Laborum Exercens, he builds on Leo's notion of the dignity of work. And John Paul, you know, argues quite beautifully, I think, that Work has dignity because the human who is doing the work has dignity. So we dignify work through our application of effort. 
the problem and the pitfall that you can sometimes fall into with that idea is that, well, then any work is just fine. The conditions of work don't matter because, well, you have inherent dignity, you apply yourself to a task that dignifies the task, regardless of the labor conditions. And I think that it's a good idea to go back to Leo's encyclical, Rerum Navarum, and notice everything that he says about what just conditions are for workers. You know, Leo pushes for working hours that are adapted to the health and strength of the worker. And he specifically mentions miners as workers who deserve shorter hours because their work is so strenuous and damaging to them physically. They should be able to earn a living for themselves and support a family on much shorter work days. That's a radical notion. And it stems from the radical idea, apparently radical in American society, that each one of us has an inherent dignity that the rest of us are obliged to recognize. We've gone through this conversation. We've acknowledged that there's uh, a real increased awareness, right, about burnout. There are still certain stories maybe that we tell ourselves that can blind us really to the effects of our workplaces or to the ideas that we might bring to them. What are some of these other myths that we might tell ourselves about work and our relationship to it that might keep burnout culture entrenched? And conversely, what would a new narrative around work look like, uh, one that would contribute to not detract from human flourishing? Yeah, the idea that we earn dignity through work is part of what I consider the noble lies surrounding work and our motives for doing it. We really do work for the money, right? But we rarely only work for the money. We want to get other things from work. We want to get dignity. We want to demonstrate our character. And we even want to find a sense of transcendent purpose. And those goods are constantly held out to us in our culture. Just listen to any high school graduation speech or read airport business bestsellers or, or something like that. And you constantly get this message that, oh, apply yourself to your work and you'll get all of these immaterial goods as well as the material ones. And certainly you can get those things from work, but not as many people are going to get them as reliably as is promised. And so those ideals for work contribute to burnout culture because they raise our expectations of what we're going to get if we put in long hours and apply ourselves, chase the, the brass rings of employment and, and promotion and so on. And burnout occurs, like I said before, when your ideals for work and the reality of your job are in conflict. And so if you're expecting dignity, character, and purpose from your work, but your conditions are undignified, the work you do feels amoral, if not immoral, and if you can't identify the purpose of what you're doing, if you feel like you're just pushing papers or money or digits around, then you're going to start to feel that strain. And so I think that the antidote is to hold on to some of those goods, like dignity, character, purpose. Those are all good things. We should strive for them and more. 
but we shouldn't necessarily strive for them solely through our work or primarily through our work. We should recognize that those goods are available outside of work if we arrange our society properly. And then work can fill in the gaps where we can build our work around the pursuit of those higher goods. And so the work can be a platform from which we can, we have the support that we need to pursue purpose within community, to pursue those higher ends. If we're not striving, as you've said, for those goods during our work time, it stands to follow that one way that we might find purpose in our life or look for purpose uh, is during our leisure time, right? Or our non-working time. It feels to me like leisure often falls victim to the same productivity, optimization, whatever you want to call it, trap that our work habits do. It's often offered as a band-aid solution for burnout, right? Like self-care, you take time off in a way that really puts the onus on the individual to find a personal solution to burnout in their free time and excuses the workplace from addressing its own structural problems. So in your mind, I'm, I'm curious, what's, as you see it, leisure's relationship to burnout? And do we need a similar conversation that we're having about burnout uh, that reframes the way we think about leisure? Yeah, when I talk to college students about leisure and work, and I, I present them with readings that argue for putting leisure first and not taking work so seriously. One thing I always hear back from the students is, okay, sure, but if I work really hard and earn a lot of money, then I can retire sooner and I'll have more money to spend on better leisure. That's that kind of competitive sense of leisure that you're talking about, that we apply the same notions of striving to our, our time away from work. Well, that's not leisure at all. That's no different than the, the world of work, the world that Joseph Pieper, who I spent some time talking about in the book, calls the world of total work. We have to think of leisure as the primary place where we pursue all kinds of goods. And we need to start thinking of leisure, not primarily as vacations where we're consuming, but leisure as fairly simple and restful and contemplative and inexpensive. Because we also have to consider that oftentimes our leisure makes demands on other people's labor. So when you go on that culinary tour of Europe, you're relying for your leisure on many people not to be leisurely. When you go for a walk in the park, well, that doesn't require too many people's labor. And often it requires no labor to specifically meet the needs of leisure at that time. And a big antidote to burnout culture would be a rethink of what we mean by leisure and then a reprioritization of leisure as the site where we pursue a lot of the best goods of human life. One of my truly favorite pieces that you've written for Commonwealth might be your essay on the Benedictine monks of the Monastery of Christ in the Desert. 
He visited their monastery in New Mexico because, you're right, you suspected the monks knew something about the proper role of work in life and you wanted to learn what it was. And so my question here for you has two, two parts. First, what lessons do you think groups like the Benedictines uh, or just generally people who have successfully ordered their lives around something that's not work? What lessons can they offer the rest of us about how to properly order work in our own lives? And second, how does that right ordering of things help us address what I think we've been getting at, which is a spiritual element of burnout, right? Rather than just the economic or the labor element. The monks of Christ in the desert live in this very remote canyon in northern New Mexico. To get to their monastery, you go off of the highway onto a gravel road for 13 miles And it takes you the better part of an hour to travel that by car because the road is so windy and so pitted and comes so close to this river that you need to avoid driving into. They generate their own electricity and they don't have a ton of daily contact with the world. I see them as embodying something very countercultural, but it's a model of life that, like you say, is not really accessible to most people. We can't just decide to all live in the desert and ignore the rest of society. But what I see going on at Christ in the Desert is a limit case. All right, what is the furthest form of life from burnout culture? And here it is. And... What we can do is say, all right, well, there's something to be learned here. What do the monks do that maybe we can import in some way into ordinary secular life? And the first one of those is that is the primacy of something that isn't work. So the monks spend six hours a day in communal prayer and an extra hour or two, at least in private prayer. And they only spend three or four hours a day doing ordinary labor. And in fact, the bells of the monastery enforce that. When the 1240 bell rings, you have to be done with what you're doing. Even if you're in the middle of a task, you have to drop what you're doing because it's time for another office of prayer. And that shifts their priorities. That's a recognition That work is not an end in itself, but rather work serves higher ends. Additionally, the monks honor each other's dignity within their community. They they serve each other. They greet each other at the end of every office of prayer. They bow to the altar. They bow to the tabernacle and they bow to the monk opposite them. And that's a recognition of the dignity in each member of the community. Now, though all of the other, those and all the other rules of the monastery are only, the monks can only adhere to them because they're communal standards. They're communally upheld. If you are just the one person at your office who sets a limit on their work, then you're weird and you become a problem and you might, lose your job. But if everyone in the office collectively decides, well, you know what? Like 
five o'clock on Friday, we're going to be really done with our work until nine o'clock on Monday. There's going to be no emailing. Our clients are going to know that we are totally unavailable, that we'll get back to their thing on Monday. That seems more accessible. You're not quitting your job, moving to the desert and, and living far from the rest of society, but you're imposing some kind of aesthetical discipline that is communally upheld in order to limit work and put something else as a priority. You had asked about the role of burnout and, and leisure in our spirituality. And I think that the Benedictines show that a spiritual life provides even higher ideals than work does. The monks and other vowed religious have extraordinarily high ideals for themselves. The thing is, they don't pursue those ideals through something that's economically productive. And there's, there can be, the, those, the pursuit of those ideals can be much freer because they don't have to satisfy a, a quarterly profit goal or a difficult to please client or something like that. They're able to have those pursuits in a way that is separate from economic productivity. It's a community standard for the monks because I, I, maybe to end on that note, I think it is a nod to a point you make very strongly in your book, right? That ending burnout is not an action an individual can take alone. It's a collective effort. It's, it's setting a definition. It's holding our workplaces to account, but it's also supporting each other, right? And acknowledging the way that we live in relation to each other. Yeah, right. Exactly. That we are often very concerned with our own burnout. I think more workplaces need to have conversations about how can we get done what we need to do without that becoming the only thing that we do in our lives. That, that is a, a form of arriving at a communal rule and upholding it and practicing forms of asceticism that will enable you to pursue higher goods. And I think that's exactly, you know, the message that I think Benedictines who live more radical lives of asceticism have to teach those of us who live in the secular world. John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Malesic's new book is The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives, available from University of California Press. You can also find the articles and essays John has written for Commonweal on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.